Section two of Early Kings of Norway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Early Kings of Norway by Thomas Carlyle. Section two. Chapters three and four. Chapter three. Hakon the Good. Eric Bloodaxe, whose practical reign is counted to have begun about A.D. 930, had by this time, or within a year or so of this time, pretty much extinguished all his brother kings, and crushed down recalcitrant spirits, in his violent way, but had naturally become entirely unpopular in Norway, and filled it with silent discontent and even rage against him. Hakon Fairhair's last son, the little foster-child of Ethelstan in England, who had been baptized and carefully educated, was come to his fourteenth or fifteenth year at his father's death, a very shining youth, as Athelstan saw, with just pleasure. So soon as the few preliminary preparations had been settled, Hakon, furnished with a ship or two by Athelstan, suddenly appeared in Norway, got acknowledged by the peasant thing in Trondheim, the news of which flew over Norway like a fire through dried grass, says an old chronicler, so that Eric, with his queen Gunhild, and seven small children had to run, no other shift for Eric. They went to the Orkneys first of all, then to England, and he got Northumberland as earldom, I vaguely hear from Athelstan. But Eric soon died, and his queen with her children went back to the Orkneys in search of refuge or help, to little purpose there or elsewhere. From Orkney she went to Denmark, where Harold Bluetooth took her poor eldest boy as foster-child, but I fear did not very faithfully keep that promise. The Danes had been robbing extensively during the late tumults in Norway. This, the Christian Hakon, now established there, paid in kind, and the two countries were at war, so that Gunhild's little boy was a welcome card in the hand of Bluetooth. Hakon proved a brilliant and successful king, regulated many things, public law among others, Gulthing, law, frostthing, law, these are little codes of his accepted, by their respective things, and had a salutary effect in their time. With prompt dexterity he drove back the Bluetooth foster-son invasions every time they came, and on the whole gained for himself the name of Hakon the Good. These Danish invasions were a frequent source of trouble to him, but his greatest and continual trouble was that of extirpating heathen idolatry from Norway, and introducing the Christian evangel in his stead. His transcendent anxiety to achieve this salutary enterprise was all along his grand difficulty and stumbling-block, the heathen opposition to it being also rooted and great. Bishops and priests from England Hakon had, preaching and baptizing what they could, but making only slow progress, much too slow for Hakon's zeal. On the other hand, every Yuletide, when the chief heathen were assembled in his own palace on their grand sacrificial festival, there was great pressure put upon Hakon, as to sprinkling with horse-blood, drinking yule-beer, eating horse-flesh, and the other distressing rites, the whole of which Hakon abhorred, and with all his steadfastness strove to reject utterly. Sigurd, Jarl of Lod, Trondheim, a liberal heathen, not openly a Christian, was ever a wise counsellor and conciliator in such affairs, and proved a great help to Hakon. Once, for example, there having risen at a Yule feast, loud, almost stormful demand, that Hakon, like a true man and brother, should drink Yule beer with them in their sacred high tide. 
Sigurd persuaded him to comply, for peace's sake at least, in form. Hakon took the cup in his left hand, excellent hot beer, and with his right cut the sign of the cross above it, then drank a draught. "'Yes, but what is this with the king's right hand?' cried the company. "'Don't you see?' answered shifty Sigurd. "'He makes the sign of Thor's hammer before drinking.' which quenched the matter for the time. Horse-flesh, horse-broth, and the horse-ingredient generally, Hakon all but inexorably declined. By Sigurd's pressing exhortation and entreaty, he did once take a kettle of horse-broth by the handle, with a good deal of linen quilt or towel interposed, and did open his lips for what of steam could insinuate itself. At another time he consented to a particle of horse-liver, intending, privately, I guess, to keep it outside the gullet, and smuggle it away without swallowing, but farther than this not even Sigurd could persuade him to go. At the things held in regard to this matter Hakon's success was always incomplete. Now and then it was a plain failure, and Hakon had to draw back till a better time. Here is one specimen of the response he got on such an occasion, curious specimen withal of antique parliamentary eloquence from an anti-Christian thing. At a thing of all the filks of Trondheim, thing held at frost in that region, King Hakon, with all the eloquence he had, signified that it was imperatively necessary that all bonders and sub-bonders should become Christians, and believe in one God, Christ the Son of Mary, renouncing entirely blood sacrifices and heathen idols, should keep every seventh day holy, abstain from labor that day, and even from food, devoting the day to fasting and sacred meditation." whereupon, by way of universal answer, arose a confused universal murmur of entire dissent. "'Take away from us our old belief, and also our time for labour,' murmured they in angry astonishment. "'How can even the land be got tilled in that way?' "'We cannot work if we don't get food,' said the hand-labourers and slaves. "'It lies in King Hakon's blood,' remarked others. "'His father and all his kindred were apt to be stingy about food, though liberal enough with money.' At length, one Osbjorn, or bear of the Osen, or gods, what we now call Osborne, one Osbjorn, of Metalhues and Gullathal, stepped forward, and said, in a distinct manner, We bonders, peasant proprietors, thought, King Hakon, when thou heldest thy first thing-day here in Trondheim, and we took thee for our king, and received our hereditary lands from thee again, that we had got heaven itself. But now we know not how it is, whether we have won freedom, or whether thou intendest anew to make us slaves, with this wonderful proposal that we should renounce our faith, which our fathers before us have held, and all our ancestors as well, first in the age of burial by burning, and now in that of earth burial. And yet these departed ones were much our superiors, and their faith, too, has brought prosperity to us." Thee, at the same time, we have loved so much that we raise thee to manage all the laws of the land, and speak as their voice to us all. And even now it is our will and the vote of all bonders to keep that paction which thou gavest here on the thing at frost, and to maintain thee as king, so long as any of us bonders who are here upon the thing has life left, provided thou, king, wilt go fairly to work, and demand of us only such things as are not impossible." But if thou wilt fix upon this thing with so great obstinacy, and employ force and power, in that case we bonders have taken the resolution, all of us, to fall away from thee, and to take for ourselves another head, who will so behave that we may enjoy in freedom the belief which is agreeable to us. 
Now shalt thou, king, choose one of these two courses before the thing disperse. Whereupon, adds the chronicle, all the bonitors raised a mighty shout, Yes, we will have it so, as has been said. So that Jarl Sigurd had to intervene, and King Hakon to choose for the moment the milder branch of the alternative. At other things Hakon was more or less successful. All his days, by such methods as there were, he kept pressing forward with this great enterprise, and on the whole did thoroughly shake asunder the old edifice of heathendom, and fairly introduce some foundation for the new and better rule of law, and life among his people. Sigurd, Jarl of Lod, his wise counsellor in all these matters, is also a man worthy of notice. Hakon's arrangements against the continual invasions of Eric's sons, with Danish Bluetooth backing them, were manifold, and for a long time successful. He appointed, after consultation and consent in the various things, so many warships, fully manned and ready, to be furnished instantly on the king's demand by each province or fjord, watch-fires, on fit places, from hill to hill all along the coast, were to be carefully set up, carefully maintained in readiness, and kindled on any alarm of war. By such methods Bluetooth and Company's invasions were for a long while triumphantly, and even rapidly, one and all of them beaten back, till at length they seemed as if intending to cease altogether, and leave Hakon alone of them. But such was not their issue after all. The sons of Eric had only abated under constant discouragement, had not finally left off from what seemed their one great feasibility in life. Gunhild, their mother, was still with them, a most contriving, fierce-minded, irreconcilable woman, diligent and urgent on them, in season and out of season, and as for King Bluetooth, he was at all times ready to help, with his good will at least. That of the alarm-fires on Hakon's part was found troublesome by his people, Sometimes it was even hurtful and provoking, lighting your alarm-fires and rousing the whole coast and population, when it was nothing but some paltry viking with a couple of ships. In short, the alarm-signal system fell into disuse, and good King Hakon himself, in the first place, paid the penalty. It is counted, by the latest commentators, to have been about A.D. 961, sixteenth or seventeenth year of Hakon's pious, valiant, and worthy reign. Being at a feast one day, with many guests, on the island of Stord, sudden announcement came to him that ships from the south were approaching in quantity, and evidently ships of war. This was the biggest of all the Bluetooth foster-son invasions, and it was fatal to hack on the good that night. Ivind, the scaldus pillar, annihilator of all other scalds, in his famed Hakon's song, gives account, and still more pertinently, the always practical Snorro. Danes in great multitude, six to one, as people afterwards computed, springing swiftly to land, and ranking themselves, Hakon nevertheless at once deciding not to take his ships and run, but to fight there, one to six, fighting accordingly in his most splendid manner, and at last gloriously prevailing, routing and scattering back to their ships and flight homeward those six to one Danes. During the struggle of the fight, says Snorro, he was very conspicuous among other men, and while the sun shone, his bright gilded helmet glanced, and thereby many weapons were directed at him. One of his henchmen, Ivan Finson, i.e. Scaldus Pillar, the poet, took a hat and put it over the king's helmet. Now, among the hostile first leaders were two uncles of the Ericsons, brothers of Gunhild, great champions both, 
Scraya, the elder of them, on the disappearance of the glittering helmet, shouted boastfully, "'Does the king of the Norsemen hide himself, then, or has he fled? Where now is the golden helmet?' And so saying, Scraya, and his brother Alf with him, pushed on like fools or madmen. The king said, "'Come on in that way, and ye shall find the king of the Norsemen.' And in a short space of time braggart Scraya did come up, swinging his sword, and made a cut at the king, but Thorolf the strong, an Icelander, who fought at the king's side, dashed his shield so hard against Scraya that he tottered with the shock. On the same instant the king takes his sword Kernbiter, able to cut kerns, or millstones, with both hands, and hews Scraya through helm and head, cleaving him down to the shoulders. Thorolf also slew Alf. That was what they got by such over-hasty search for the king of the Norsemen. Snorro considers the fall of these two champion uncles as the crisis of the fight, the Danish force being much disheartened by such a sight, and King Hakon now pressing on so hard that men gave way before him. The battle on the Ericsson part became a whirl of recoil, and in a few minutes more a torrent of mere flight and haste to get on board their ships, and put to sea again, in which operation many of them were drowned, says Snorro, survivors making instant sail for Denmark in that sad condition. This seems to have been King Hakon's finest battle, and the most conspicuous of his victories, due not a little to his own grand qualities shown on the occasion. But alas, it was his last also. He was still zealously directing the chase of that mad Danish flight, or whirl of recoil toward their ships, when an arrow, shot most likely at a venture, hit him under the left armpit, and this proved his death. He was helped into his ship, and made sail for Erikstad, where his chief residence in those parts was, but had to stop at a smaller place of his, which had been his mother's, and where he himself was born, a place called Hela, the Flat Rock, still known as Hakon's Hela, faint from loss of blood, and crushed down as he had never before felt. Having no son and only one daughter, he appointed these invasions of Eric to be sent for, and if he died to become king, but to spare his friends and kindred. If a longer life be granted me, he said, I will go out of this land to Christian men, and do penance for what I have committed against God. But if I die in the country of the heathen, let me have such burial as you yourselves think fittest. These are his last recorded words. And in heathen fashion he was buried, and besung by Ivand and the Skalds, though himself a zealously Christian king. Hakon the good, so one still finds him worthy of being called. The sorrow on Hakon's death, Snorro tells us, was so great and universal, that he was lamented both by friends and enemies, and they said that never again would Norway see such a king. CHAPTER Four: HAROLD, Greyfell, AND BROTHERS Eric's sons, four or five of them, with a herald at the top, now once got Norway in hand, all of it but Trondheim, as king and under-kings, and made a severe time of it for those who had been, or seemed to be, their enemies. Excellent Jarl Sigurd, always so useful to Hakon and his country, was killed by them, and they came to repent that before very long. The slain Sigurd left a son, Hakon, as Jarl, who became famous in the northern world by and by. This Hakon, and him only, would the Trondheimers accept as sovereign. Death to him, then, said the sons of Eric, but only in secret, till they had got their hands free and were ready, which was not yet for some years. Nay, Hakon, when actually attacked, made good resistance, and threatened to cause trouble. Nor did he by any means get his death from these sons of Eric at this time, or till long afterwards at all, from one of their kin, as it chanced. 
On the contrary, he fled to Denmark now, and by and by managed to come back to their cost. Among their other chief victims were two cousins of their own, Trigve and Gudrod, who had been honest underkings to the late head-king, Hakon the Good, but were now become suspect, and had to fight for their lives, and lose them in tragic manner. Trigve had a son, whom we shall hear of. Gudrod, son of worthy Bjorn the Chapman, was grandfather of St. Olaf, whom all men have heard of, who has a church in Southwark even, and another in Old Jewry to this hour. In all these violences Gunhild, widow of the late King Eric, was understood to have a principal hand. She had come back to Norway with her sons, and naturally passed for the secret adviser and maternal president in whatever a violence went on, always reckoned a fell, vehement, relentless personage where her own interests were concerned. Probably, as things settled, her influence on affairs grew less. At least one hopes so, and in the sagas hears less and less of her, and before long nothing. Harold, the head king in this Eric fraternity, does not seem to have been a bad man. The contrary, indeed, but his position was untowardly, full of difficulty and contradictions. Whatever Harold could accomplish for behoove of Christianity, or real benefit to Norway, in these cross circumstances, he seems to have done in a modest and honest manner. He got the name of Greyfell from his people on a very trivial account, but seemingly with perfect good humour on their part. Some Iceland trader had brought a cargo of furs to Trondheim, Lud, for sale. Sale being slacker than the Icelander wished, he presented a chosen specimen, cloak, doublet, or whatever it was, to Harold, who wore it with acceptance in public, and rapidly brought disposal of the Icelander's stock, and the surname of Greyfell to himself. His under-kings and he were certainly not popular, though I almost think Greyfell himself, in absence of his mother and the under-kings, might have been so. But here they all were, and had wrought great trouble in Norway. Too many of them, said everybody, too many of these courts and court-people, eating up any substance that there is. For the seasons withal, two or three of them in succession, were bad for grass, much more for grain, no herring came either, very cleanness of teeth was likely to come in Ivan Skaldaspillar's opinion. This scarcity became at last their share of the great famine of A.D. 975, which desolated Western Europe. See the poem in the Saxon Chronicle. And all this, by Ivan Skaldaspillar, and the heathen Norse in general, was ascribed to anger of the heathen gods. Discontent in Norway, and especially in Ivan Skaldaspillar, seems to have been very great. Whereupon exile Hakon, Jarl Sigurd's son, bestirs himself in Denmark, backed by old King Bluetooth, and begins invading and encroaching in a miscellaneous way, especially intriguing and contriving plots all round him. An unfathomably cunning kind of fellow, as well as an audacious and strong-handed. Intriguing in Trondheim, where he gets the underking, Greyfell's brother, fallen upon and murdered. Intriguing with Gold Harold, a distinguished cousin or nephew of King Bluetooth's, who had done fine Viking work, and gained such wealth that he got the epithet of gold, and who now was infinitely desirous of a share in Bluetooth's kingdom as the proper finish to these sea rovings. He even ventured one day to make publicly a distinct proposal, that way to King Harold Bluetooth himself, who flew into thunder and lightning at the mere mention of it, so that none durst speak to him for several days afterwards. Of both these heralds Hakon was confidential friend, and needed all his skill to walk without immediate annihilation between such a pair of dragons, and work out Norway for himself withal. 
In the end he found he must take solidly to Bluetooth's side of the question, and that they too must provide a recipe for Gold Herald and Norway both at once. "'It is as much as your life is worth to speak again of sharing this Danish kingdom,' said Hakon, very privately to Gold Herald. "'But could not you, my golden friend, be content with Norway for a kingdom, if one helped you to it?' "'That could I well,' answered Harold. Then keep me these nine warships you have just been rigging for a new Viking cruise. Have these in readiness when I lift my finger. That was the recipe contrived for Gold Herald. Recipe for King Greyfell goes into the same vial, and is also ready. Hitherto the hack on Bluetooth disturbances in Norway had amounted to but little. King Greyfell, a very active and valiant man, has constantly, without much difficulty, repelled these sporadic bits of troubles but Greyfell, all the same, would willingly have peace with dangerous old Bluetooth, ever anxious to get his clutches over Norway on any terms, if peace with him could be had. Bluetooth, too, professes every willingness, inveigles Greyfell, he and Hakon do, to have a friendly meeting on the Danish borders, and not only settle all these quarrels, but generously settle Greyfell in certain fiefs which he claimed in Denmark itself, and so swear everlasting friendship. Greyfell joyfully complies, punctually appears at the appointed day in Limford Sound, the appointed place. Whereupon Hakon gives signal to Gold Herald, to Limfjord with these nine ships of yours, swift! Gold Herald flies to Limfjord with his ships, challenges King Harold Greyfell to land and fight, which the undaunted Greyfell, though so far outnumbered, does, and fighting his very best, perishes there, he and almost all his people." Which done, Jarl Hakon, who is in readiness, attacks Gold Herald, the victorious but the wearied, easily beats Gold Herald, takes him prisoner, and instantly hangs and ends him, to the huge joy of King Bluetooth and Hakon, who now make instant voyage to Norway, drive all the brother underkings into rapid flight to the Orkneys, to any readiest shelter, and so, under the patronage of Bluetooth, Hakon, with the title of Jarl, becomes ruler of Norway. This foul treachery done, on the brave and honest Harold Greyfell, is by some dated about A.D. 969, by Munch, 965, by others, computing out of Snorro only, 975. For there is always an uncertainty in these Icelandic dates, say, rather, rare and rude attempts at dating, without even an A.D. or other fixed year one to go upon in Iceland, though seldom, I think, so large a discrepancy as here. End of section 2 Early Kings of Norway, Chapters 3 and 4